Good morning. We, you guys came in a great week. We started a brand new sermon series called Losing My Religion, and we're going to have a great time. This week's been a bit crazy because uh, we've had our trunk or treat. We spent much of the week getting ready for this event tonight, and being around all this candy um, hasn't been good for this region right up in here. Uh, let's just say that if 100 grand, the candy bar was actually 100 grand, I'd be a millionaire. Maybe a multimillionaire. Uh, I couldn't be more excited for tonight. It's a great opportunity for us as a church to show love to the families in our community. Uh, I know that some of you guys have work and family commitments and stuff like that, but I know that many of you are praying uh, for this event, and your prayers make a difference. Uh, this is a great week to come for the first time because you kind of get on the front end of this four-week series, and uh, uh, you might be thinking, Losing my religion, and a pastor's going to talk about that. Shouldn't you be talking about gaining religion, not losing it? Uh, shouldn't the series be called Gaining? The word religion stems from the Latin word religare, and it's a combination of the words um, re, which is to return or to repeat, and ligare, which is to tie or to bind. Our English word ligament comes from this word ligari as well. And so it, religion at its best could be to bring back together again. But there is a negative meaning to this word religion. Uh, remember the word stems from the Latin religari. Uh, quite literally, religion can mean to return again to bondage. This is the kind of religion that we're going to be losing throughout this series. Uh, we're going to look at, this morning, it's, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, get your thinking caps on. We're going to look at three of the most prominent atheistic philosophers of the last two centuries and look at their critique on religion and just see how that lines up with Jesus. And it's going to get weird, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, so first, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. Freud's critique of religion is basically this. Religion is psychological self-justification, and it leads to self-righteousness. This is Freud's critique on religion. Uh, and they did this case study. When, uh, there was about this little girl, and whenever she did something wrong, her parents would spank her very, very hard. She would get a punishment. And this girl, uh, every time she did something wrong, she, would, she was fairly deliberate in trying to get caught. So she would, like, leave something out so her parents would find it. Um, she, she would kind of uh, stand next to something. She would hint at the wrong action just intuitively trying to get caught. Then the parents would say, what's in there? What were you doing? Then she would admit it, and she would get punished. Uh, finally, after meeting with family counselors, it, the parents were able to see that, they, that this is what she was doing. She was, she was trying to get caught. Now, after each punishment, the behavior didn't change. She, she actually wasn't changing a bit. In fact, she got worse. And this is actually Sigmund Freud's critique on religion. Freud would say that this girl is using her parents. She was using her strict, punishing parents. Uh, well, I can still do whatever I want. I can pay for what I did. And as long as I'm being punished, I can continue on my behavior. This is what religion does. My conscience is clear. I've paid my debt. People use religion. They don't want to change their lives. They want to justify their lives. So they use Sunday morning and religious practices to feel better about doing whatever you want the rest of the week. This is Freud's critique. It's like that very last scene in The Godfather. Have you guys ever seen that movie? Right? Uh, he, he's in church. 
He's at this baby's baptism. I think we have a picture of this scene, Al Pacino and the Godfather. And while he's in church, his henchmen are savagely killing and eliminating all their competition. I pay. I do my penance. I pay my tithes. And what I've done is create a mean, punishing God who once I've done my time and my good deeds, I'm free to go on my merry way. Religion is psychological self-justification. And the fruit of this is a smugness, religiosity, and self-righteousness. Freud says, God didn't create you in his image. You created God in your image. A God that you can placate by your religious activities. Karl Marx. Marx is the one who said, uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. Marx says, I don't see religion as the thing that people use by their actions, but rather to sociologically justify their actions. This is his critique. Religion is sociological justification, and it leads to exclusion. He says people use religion to divide because we're right, they're wrong. Uh, our nation is better than your nation. Our religion is better than your religion. We're better than you. We're good in here, and they're evil and bad out there. Come to us. We're safe. Religion is just a way for justifying, liking the kind of people who look like us, who live like us, and believe like us, and excluding all others. That's Marx. And finally, Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche's pretty hot right now. Uh, he's the one who coined the phrase, God is dead. Nietzsche's critique of religion is basically this. Religion and all truth belief systems are a power grab that inevitably leads to abuse of that power. This is the beginning of relativism, which is that uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth, right? You've got your truth. That's awesome. Good for you. But it's not absolute for everybody else. I've got my truth. Religion's just a power trip. Everyone's just trying to gain power. It's an attempt to influence and gain power and abuse people. Its fruit is abuse. So those are the critiques of religion by some of the most influential thinkers in the last two centuries. Freud, it's about self-justification. Marx, uh, social justification. It leads to exclusion. And Nietzsche, it's a power grab that leads to abuse. Religion is about self-righteousness, exclusion, and power, none of which have anything to do with Jesus. All of their critiques have nothing to do with Jesus. And from the get-go, when, when I'm saying religion, and this is something we're going to revisit kind of throughout the series— I'm saying that it's, it's us relating to God through systems, doctrines, codes of conduct, inherited traditions, and institutions of power. When Jesus describes what he started, he never uses the word religion. Ever. In fact, the Bible never uses the word religion in a positive way in the entire canon of Scripture except for one verse— and let me read that verse to you. James 1.27. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James is saying that for followers of Christ, religious rituals are no longer things like uh, memorizing religious liturgies offering sacrifices, attending religious services, celebrating religious holidays, saying specific prayers in specific positions. Rather, our rituals are acts of mercy, acts of compassion, acts of love. Our religion is no longer religious duties and practices and beliefs. 
our religion is love. And when Jesus talks about connecting with God, he never speaks of religion, he speaks of faith. So what does Jesus think of Freud's critique on religion? What does Jesus have to say about self-righteousness? Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus rebukes the same kind of religion that Freud rebukes. Freud and Jesus are on the same page here. What does Jesus think of Marx's critique on religion? What does Jesus do about inclusion? What kind of example does Jesus set? I'm not going to read them all, but check this out. He cared for children. He talked to sinful people. He ate with tax collectors. He touched a bleeding woman. He spoke to a demon-possessed man. He touched lepers. Jesus conversed with a promiscuous woman. Jesus rebukes the same exclusive religion that Marx rebukes. Jesus didn't get crucified because he was exclusive, but rather because he was inclusive. It upset the religious apple cart that Jesus was including all the people that all the religious people were saying, they're bad, get them out of here. Jesus says, come on in. What does Jesus think of Nietzsche's critique? What does Jesus say about power and abuse? Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus teaches this throughout his ministry, that the greatest among you is not the one in charge, not the pastor, not the leader, not the king, not the emperor. The greatest among you is the slave, is the one who serves, who puts others above them, not commands from the top down, do my bidding. The first will be last, the last will be first. All of these critiques on religion by these prominent atheistic philosophers of the 19th and 20th centuries are actually in agreement with the teachings of Jesus. The religion that Freud and Marx and Nietzsche condemned, Jesus also condemns. Now, in my own interactions with people who do not believe in God, often they'll say something like, I don't believe in a God who, and they riddle off a bunch of things, right? One of those, I don't believe a God who does nothing about the world's suffering. I don't believe in a God who hates gay people. I don't believe in a God who uh, shows love to some people but condemns and sentences the rest to hell for eternity. And then I tell them, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> We're in agreement there. That you're not describing the Jesus I know, the Jesus I see taught throughout the scriptures. Let's get real practical here. Picture yourself in a doctor's waiting room, okay? We've all been there. You're in a doctor's waiting room. You've got the common cold. You got little sniffles. So you go up, you go to the check-in, and you say your name and your appointment time. Um, and the reception says, it's going to be at least 10 minutes. And then you say, kindly, it's 9.44. My appointment was at 9.45. 10 minutes, please take a seat, sir. Okay, so then you sit. And you're middle a little bit angry with her. Uh, so, so you let it show with your tone of your voice. Okay. I'll just go sit down then. And then you go and sit. Now, you walk away thinking the least she could do is like like have an apologetic tone in her voice, but she didn't. And your heart is just getting a little bit angry towards this person at the front desk. So you take your seat, but there's only two seats. One seat available is next to like a 60-something Middle Eastern man, okay? A culture much different than your own. 
And then the other seat is uh, someone your age, and they're wearing something that actually you own in your closet, but you haven't worn it in a couple of years. So you pull up to you from two years ago, and you sit next to them. And you're thinking, that shirt that she's wearing or he's wearing is so 2015. <laughs> and you sit. Now, you're sitting there, and uh, as you're waiting, time's going slow. So you pick up a magazine, right? And everyone knows the best waiting room magazines to read are National Geographic, <laughs> okay? Those yellow National Geos, they're great. So you open up your Nat Geo, and you're flipping through the magazine, and you see some pictures. You're not reading it. You're just looking through the pictures. And you see these kids in Africa. And you're like, oh, that's so sad. And you keep flipping through and do nothing about it. And now you're done with the magazine, but now it functions as a cover for what you really want to do. People watch. If you've never people watched, it's just as fun as it sounds. You look around, and you watch people, but you also comment on their entire lives in your head. You tell yourself the stories. What led them here? What does he have? What does she have? You see a young pregnant woman, maybe in her early 20s. You immediately look to her left ring finger. Right? Is she, is she married, or is she just knocked up? She doesn't have a ring. Scandalous. <laughs> you see another young girl. She's holding a Kleenex. She's got the sniffles too. You slyly scan her up and down. She's reading a, a Christian book. You're like, my people. <laughs> you look at her. But you notice as she closes that chapter of that book, she's wearing a Christian t-shirt with a church name on it that is different than the church you attend. And you're like, oh. She goes down to my book. You had a bad experience with this other church, and you think to yourself, I bet you're just like the rest of them in that church. Just judging people with your mind every day, every time. At my church, we've really got the gospel. Now it's been 10 minutes, and your name still hasn't been called. Who's running this place? Let's go. If I were in charge, things would be different. It wouldn't be like this. If someone has a 945 time, they're getting in at 945, and I'm going to give a nice tone of my voice if I have to say, please go take a seat for a tiny bit, but we'll be calling your name shortly. I would run this place different. Self-righteousness, exclusion, power trip. Freud, Marx, Nietzsche. All in us in the 11 minutes we waited in a doctor's waiting room. You see, Pharisees are an easy scapegoat. Those Pharisees, those hypocrites, they wash the outside of the cup, but the inside, it's all dirty. And it's an easy scapegoat to say those religious hypocrites. And that, that, that placates our conscious enough to not look at the hypocritical aspects of our own lives. Self-righteousness, exclusion, power trip. Jesus never commands his followers to embrace a detailed creed or code of conduct. He never instructs his followers to participate in re exhaustive religious activity. His life's work was about undoing the knots that bound people tied to these religion, to these empty traditions. Matthew 21, 
Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and money changers and, and benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. This was the, the description that Jesus has of the most religious place in first century Palestine, the temple. He calls it a den of thieves. Now, I used to think that Jesus is quoting here Jeremiah and he's flipping over the tables because they're charging an exorbitant amount of money for people who are offering sacrifices. And so he's, um, he's mad about the greed. But the meaning runs much deeper than that. You see, a den of robbers or a den of thieves is where thieves and robbers go to hide out. They don't go there to do the robbing. They go do their robbing and then hide out in the temple. You ever experienced this? The religious system of Israel, like any religious system today, was repeatedly used as a spiritual hideout with people with a guilty conscience. Rather than change how they lived, Israel simply added a little bit of religion to their lives to keep everything balanced. Like the Godfather going to Mass on Sunday morning, these religious systems can placate our own conscience enough to justify doing whatever we want to do. Ever been to church hoping to find grace, mercy, and acceptance only to find a den of robbers hiding out in the mask of religiosity? Jesus shows us a better way. Picture a thirsty person holding a cup of water. Now picture that person licking the outside of the cup. It's weird. Why did you make me think of that? This is the picture of religion. Religious people tend to focus on the cup and forget about the contents. They argue about which cup is the best, but they forget to drink from any of them. Some cups are ornate, some are simple. People are attracted to all different kinds, yet none of them will quench your thirst. I'm not saying that there's no refreshment within religion, but just that the cup itself doesn't bring the satisfaction. In fact, whenever we think we have found the right cup, we should probably throw it away because we've already confused the contents with the container, the substance with the structure, faith with form. The Bible calls this process of confusing the means and the end idolatry. And it happens to well-meaning people all the time. Uh, through the, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, God expresses this disappointment with this tendency that we have. He says this in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that don't hold water. It's perfect. God himself is the fountain of living water. Don't confuse it for the container which we say we own and holds God. It's about the water. We can't set up a water stand next to a river. You got to come here for water. And there's this flowing, vast river behind us. God never says to his people, hey, listen, you've got it wrong. You're drinking from the wrong cup. Choose the right cup, and then you will please me. No, the God of the Bible doesn't advocate one cup by which to quench this thirst we all have. Rather, he invites us to go to him directly. 
Here's another point that we're going to revisit throughout the series, and this is probably the theme of the series. Jesus came to replace religion with himself. You don't have to go and do these certain sacrifices, these certain rituals, these certain traditions, follow these certain laws to have access with God. Jesus gives us access. It's people like many of us, tired of religion, tired of our own striving, that religion is exposed as our attempt to reach God, and the climb is exhausting. Trying to reach God on our own merit, it's exhausting. But if Jesus is God coming to us, then religion becomes redundant. Religion uses rules to force our steps, guilt, guilt to keep us in line, and rituals to remind us of the failure and that we failed to live up to them. In doing this, religion adds more weight to those who are already burdened, right? Jesus says, take my yoke. It's easy. My burden is light. Eugene Peterson in the message translation interprets that passage this way, and I just think it's so beautiful. It really gets to what we're going for. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I want the rest that Jesus offers. I want to learn the unforced rhythms of grace for my life as a husband, for my life as a father, for my life as a pastor, for my life as a follower of Jesus. I want to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. In 2004, there was a movie called The Village directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Love this director. He's famous for like these amazing twists that you didn't see coming, okay? The Sixth Sense, what? He was dead the whole time. <laughs> Mind blown. The village is no different. The village depicts a community of 19th century villagers afraid of monsters in the surrounding woods, okay? Something terrible is out there, and only the town is kept safe. Kids aren't allowed to go beyond a certain distance. Sometimes they put an animal out in the forest to appease the monsters. Sometimes people will get glimpses of the monsters in the woods. And it turns out, spoiler alert, plug your ears, or if you're listening online, okay, skip past this. It's all fake. There's nothing in the woods. It's actually a community of adults who left the outside world to seclude themselves from society. They invent the myth of the monsters to keep the kids from entering into the real world. They even dress up as the monsters so that the kids will believe the lie. And it's not 19th century either. It's present day. Bam, mind blown, okay? You can see up top is the, is the town, and then down at the very end of the movie, there's this Jeep pulling up. They're hiding within this park. Sometimes I think the church today is operating under a similar mindset as the adults in the village. So afraid of the world that they set up rules, lines, boundaries in order to safeguard their own worldview. But what the movie shows us, that in order to protect the people, the parents had to become the monsters themselves. 
They had to become the monsters to keep people in line, to keep people believing and thinking just like they're supposed to think. And they're missing the world outside that Jesus loves. They had to become that which would keep people in fear. Perhaps this is why when, when people leave the church or leave a religion, they often say, I escaped. This is not the way of Jesus. This is the way of religion. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up, and I'll close with this. Many years ago, there's a famous British actor named MacReady. MacReady would portray fiction in such beautiful ways that he would have sellout crowds no matter where he performed in the United Kingdom. He would perform these plays that were all extravagant, and people would flock and there was a pastor in Great Britain who was just so curious. Nobody would come to his services. And so he went up to McCready after a show one night, and he said, Mr. McCready, you have got to tell me, how do you have thousands and thousands of people flock to your church or you, to, 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 to watch you perform a play? And I got to beg people, and nobody shows up. There's lines out the door. You're sold out every night. Nobody comes. You are presenting fiction, and I'm presenting the unchanging truth of God, and nobody shows up. What's the answer? And McCready smiled. He said, it's easy. It's easy. You present your truth as fiction, and I present fiction as truth. In other words, you don't really believe it. You don't even believe what you're selling. I, I believe in this, and I make people believe in it too. You're pretending up there. Are we pretending? Do we have a facade of religiosity and then we call it faith? Do we love the, the routines and the social status that it comes? My family, we go to church every Sunday. We behave. God's blessing us. Is that just a facade that we call love of God? Or do we really love God? Jesus replaces religion with himself. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burn, on, burn out on religion? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would lift you up, that Christ alone would be our cornerstone, not our religious practices, not, our, not even our own behavior, that Christ alone would be our cornerstone. And so, Jesus, I pray that throughout this series that you would expose the hypocrisy in us, that you would expose the self-righteousness in us, that you would expose the inclusion or the exclusion that we all do every single day. And God, if we're ever in it for a power grab, just to be right, God, I pray that you'd rebuke that in us and may we be filled up with Jesus. May we become more like Christ. May we be those who call out the religiosity of our own faith and live a more Christ-like life. Religion that is pure and faultless is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So God, I pray that we would go green in our own lives. <laughs> that we wouldn't be 
polluting this world, but we'd be bringing about goodness and love and mercy and joy and peace and righteousness instead of self-righteousness and light instead of darkness, God. Expose it in us, God. Deal with us, God, as we open up our hearts to you and proclaim that Christ alone is our cornerstone, replacing religion with Jesus. Let's stand and worship the King of Kings together. Thank you.